welcome to today's show. And our guest today has been in the liquor business since he was 16. And he just quietly gets on with it, doesn't make a big noise or wants to be in the limelight. He is also a second generation. His father was in the business and I'm very excited to welcome Jason Neal to to the show today. Jason is the owner of Nicholson Smith and also a brand company. What is that called, Jason? Uh, thanks a lot, Holger. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, the the business that we have that we yeah, produce and market and and distribute other uh, our own products is called Drinksmiths. Drinksmiths. Yes. And when did you start that? So it all started. Uh, it all started about five years ago, six years ago, when uh, when I decided to bring out Pandora's box, and that was the start of the vision to produce some of our own products. And as it evolved, and I moved away. I mean, obviously, I produce a lot of different wines, and then we've now moved into produce some cream liqueurs after that now we've just brought out a gin so i wanted to encompass them all under a business that was you know that was quite easy to understand so that's why we called it the drinksmiths we wanted to have something that was quite unique and we didn't want to pigeonhole it in wine or gin or vodka or whatever it was because we're very much about looking at what the trends are in the market and we try and do stuff as good, if not better, than, than than some of the some of the players in the market, and yeah, that's that's where the vision came from. And I'm sure that you, with all your experience, you probably know more about the trade than many others, and probably know your your customers better than they sometimes know themselves. So I guess you you know what sells, and you know what doesn't sell, and you know what the consumer wants. Uh, definitely. I mean, I'm. Uh, I think I'm quite unique as an owner. Um, a lot of owners uh, like to just manage their manage their businesses. I'm very much like to be very hands on in uh, in my business. I still actually rep an area myself, even though I'm the owner of the business and I do all the key accounting. I like to uh, I like to rep an area myself so that I can have some insight from a market perspective on what the trends are, you know, what's working, what's not working. And I don't want to just hear that back from my sales reps. I want to see it firsthand for my customers' sake. So, yeah. Well, if I look at, at our wine cellar, there's certainly a lot of Pandora box in there. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing <laughs> or a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a very good thing, Holger. <laughs> it's it's certainly, a great taste. It's certainly very popular in in KZN, and I see a lot of it, and I see big piles of it. So it must be a good value product, um, and uh, certainly my wife enjoys it, and I occasionally occasionally partake as well. But Jason, you Thanks. started um, in the business a long, long time ago. When you say you were only sixteen, tell us about that. <laughs> Yeah, so um, uh, obviously I'm a second generation, uh, you know, in the liquor trade. My yeah. father started off; he, he he ran some very very big businesses in, uh, in in the liquor trade, and I always grew up in liquor. Um, and then my father decided to leave the the rat race, um, the corporate rat race, and he decided to open some some bottle stores. So I opened a place called the Cellars of Hyde Park. Um, in Hyde Park Shopping Centre, and he had a, another bottle store in Brixton, and um, 
he tasked myself when I was 16. He had a manager, but obviously on the weekend there was uh, he needed a relief manager. So I got uh, I got thrown in the deep end and got told that I needed to manage a store when I was uh, when I was 16 years old. So I carried on obviously at school, and then on the weekends I would. Uh, I would be uh, Friday afternoons and and Saturdays. I would uh, I would manage a store for him, and that's actually where my love for wine came from because there were some very affluent people that lived there and uh, obviously around Hyde Park, and um, they had great knowledge of wine. And I was a 16 year old who knew absolutely nothing about wine, didn't even really know what the difference between red or white wine was. So uh, I learned very very quickly because I had to. Yeah, and did you do tastings yeah. like Gary Vaynerchuk and his dad's wine shop in New York? Uh, I definitely. We had um, we were quite unique. We uh, we used to go to a lot of people's wine cellars, and we used to buy up their old wine cellars. And uh, in the back of our shop, we had uh, a whole tasting area and a lot of old vintage wines that we used to sell at the same time. So we we tried to bring that old school sort of. Uh, wine shop back you know um where we understood what our customers wanted we used to phone them up and tell them all the different sort of wines that we bring in try and make our customers feel exceptionally special yeah i love that sort of thing and uh, i wouldn't mind owning one of those bottle stores myself <laughs> yeah, me either i think i would definitely like to own one again yeah there's not many of those around it's all all slick and franchised and clean and uh, no, nothing no surprises no definitely not yeah tell us a little bit about your dad you said he worked for sab yeah so he first um back in the days in the 70s when everyone was given a name so there was mr jmb and mr bells my father's was mr ballantines and he was the one that uh, built ballantines in south africa um and uh, off that, um, the, the holding company, Hiram Walker, um, asked him to transfer to the, the UK when I was three um, to become the vice president of, of, uh, of Hiram Walker, which he did. We then moved to uh, Portugal because my mother was not very happy how cold it was in the UK. So we lived there for eight years. Um, and he tra we traveled the world with him uh, based based on being in the liquor trade. Um, and then my mother wanted to come back to South Africa. So he he was approached by two companies, Appletizer and uh, and South African Breweries. Obviously, he took the, the route to South African Breweries and he was tasked with – so that was in the, in the late 80s. He was tasked with um, launching um, South African Breweries beers onto the international market because they – there was no footprint worldwide. So um, it's hard to imagine yeah. that South African breweries was only in South Africa. Yeah, at it one was. Stage. I mean, yeah, my, my father was a big driving force behind the change in packaging. Uh, if you, I don't know if you remember, but in the late eighties, it was all metallic, and um, on international shelves, it didn't work. So he was tasked to uh, to re to redesigns and to yeah to get it launched uh, launched on the market. Um, my father was offered two salaries, either a salary or he was offered a one rand commission per case sold. And um, unfortunately for him, he took the salary because he had a family. Uh, but if he had taken the one rand, um, yeah, within within the within, um, I think it was within the first two years, 
Um, he was almost outselling the BSLs in South Africa um, oh. on an international market. And it was really because of uh, his international links that he had uh, from Hiram Walker days that uh, – that made it so fluid for him to uh, to get South African breweries product into the international market. That's a fascinating story, and I guess with yeah. with your father being in the business, it was easy for you to follow in his footsteps. And and uh, you probably know all the old timers in the industry. I definitely do. Uh, actually, my first venture uh, from a, from a, from a liquor perspective, which you most probably don't know, Holger, okay, is that I actually owned a Sorghum Brewery. No. I, um, yeah, so when when my father sold the bottle store, he's like, "Well, you don't really have a job now." Well, I could have I could have moved on with the new owners, but um, he said, "Look, there's this opportunity in Deep Slurt if you're interested." And I was about 21 at the time, I think, so I thought it was a very interesting thing. So uh, yeah, it was a it was a very interesting uh, first venture into uh, into the liquor uh, you know from an ownership perspective into the liquor trade and uh i made a lot of mistakes um i was there for three years but uh yeah it's it's stood me in great yeah uh, i was yeah i, I became a, a much stronger businessman uh, okay. based on that did you make a profit uh, no, not really. <laughs> okay. That's why it only lasted three years. <laughs> okay. And and from there, what happened? Um, then I uh, I actually worked for uh, I I op- I helped open a, a bottle store in Kailami called Kailami Cafe Bottle Store, still around. Um, and I met, I, I got reintroduced to a lot of people in the trade. So um, I, I started as a rep as, uh, after I'd done that, I started as a rep at uh, at uh, Somerset Wines, which I don't think exists anymore, but I worked for Butti Ritoff. Butti Ritoff, yeah. One of the old timers, yeah. And uh, I worked there for about a year and a half. And um, then I... Uh, then I went to go work for a company called Augusta Wines, which was uh, owned by a guy called Count Augusta. Uh, if you know Augusta Helicopters and Augusta Motorbikes, he um, he was uh, his grandfather started uh, started that business many years ago. So a very poor poor chap, and he had a wine farm here in South Africa that's now been sold, and now it's called Grand Provence. And on the other side of the f- uh, he had two farms on the other side of the road uh, was uh, a business called La Terra de Luc, uh, La Vie de Luc uh, Mineral Water. Mm. And um, I, I was tasked also to to sell water at the same time, which I knew nothing about, but quickly became the biggest part of my business. So, yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I do recognize the water brand and uh, I've seen it around and I think they do quite well. Yeah. So, um, so when I started uh, up in Gauteng, uh, we didn't do one rand up here in, in Johannesburg. And by the time I joined Nicholson Smith, we were the number one on consumption water in South Africa. So, uh, yeah, it was quite an achievement. And yeah, the brand is still growing very, very nicely. Obviously, it's uh, we predominantly the water is predominantly an on consumption, so <laughs> it is taking a bit of a hit at the moment. But yeah. um, yeah, things will turn. But it's still going. So that's that's a good twenty years later. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
And then, so you joined Nicholson Smith. Now your your surname is not in in the business name. So I guess it it wasn't your business when he started it, there. It, it wasn't. It was uh, it, so the business was started in 1997 by the two founders, uh, John Nicholson and Chris Smith, and uh, they brought in product called Bowman's from from the US. Um, and the problem was it was standard whiskey, standard vodka, and, and unfortunately it was in a, in a plastic bottle and it was at a premium price point. So the writing was on the wall that they would, they would never never succeed with those brands. So they decided to diversify. And uh, then in 2005, because um, I knew them from from actually from the days when I, when I ran my father's bottle store, um, they approached me because they knew I was back in the trade and uh, Chris Smith was about to retire. His, his his grandmother had left him quite a big inheritance, so he didn't really feel like he needed to work anymore. Um, and I was at the time stupid enough and young enough to just jump in. Um, we were pretty much technically insolvent. We were over 600,000 rand in debt in 2005. Uh, but yeah, I was, I just believed that I could, I could do something with the business. So uh, John Nicholson and I were 50, 50 partners at the time. And then sadly in 2009, uh, he passed away. Uh, unfortunately he was in a coma for, for, for quite some time, which was a very stressful time, uh, in the business. Um, and then when he passed away, I bought his widow's uh, shares. So, yeah, I became the 100% owner of Nicholson Smith. So, yeah, I, uh, a lot of people have asked me why my name isn't on there. I'm obviously Jason Neal. But, you know, it's a, it, it's a brand that's been built up uh, for, for a long time, you know, since 1997. So I was, uh, yeah, very proud to uh, be the custodian of the brand. Yeah. And it's been, yeah, like you say, it's well known and it's, it's been around. Mm. And when did you trans? Or when did you change the business into a wine distribution business? So it was when I arrived. It was, but there was some very um, entry level sort of brands. We used to do stuff like DJ coolers. Um, so we, we were doing a lot of main market sort of business, and my skills were not really in that sort of market, even though. I'd had a Sorghum Brewery, so I understood the business. Yeah, I My saw, skills were… I saw that yeah. DJ Cooler factory went up for auction recently. That's right. Yeah, yeah it's closed down, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, I very much was about premiumizing the brand. The brand. Um, obviously, from a profit margin perspective, um, at, at low-end price points, there's not much profit. Um, there's obviously… It's about creating massive volume. Uh, you know and potentially then you, you know um, you gain on that side but i was very much i, I looked at the business and i said well the, the business is not a very big business we, we're not cash flush so we need to get in some brands that are going to generate us some good income and luckily i i knew a lot of people in the trade obviously based on my history um at the same time i brought Levi Deluxe business with me. Um, that was one of the provisors of me coming into the business is that I approached the owner of Levi Deluxe and I said, look, I'm happy, uh, you know, if he's happy that I move on to, uh, I would obviously like to uh, take your business on. So I already had in my head that I knew we were going to do certain amount of turnover, which we did. Um, but on the back of that, 
with my links in the trade, we started taking on other good brands. Um, yeah, so we f- then generally fully focused on wine at the time uh, with a bit of water. Um, but that's since changed. We've now become a drinks business. We are now, we do from Fitch and Leeds to gin to uh, craft beer, yeah, you name it. Whatever the trends are, we generally will follow them. Yeah, but it it seems to me like the generally the wine distributors have done fairly well, and I guess the margins in wine are are reasonably good. Um, they are. I mean, it, uh, so. Uh, it it all I suppose it all, it all depends at what sort of price point you're pitching at. Where I pitch at the likes of Pandora's box, we're very much on a on a on a volume driven uh, brand. The margins are very tight, but the brand is in excess of twenty thousand to thirty thousand cases a month. So, the, you know, you, you you have the ability to make very small margins. Um, yeah. You know, and, and and I feel very sorry for a lot of wine farms because as much as their margins are quite high, uh, I think their overheads are extremely high. So uh, I'm glad I'm in the position that I am and I'm not a wine farm owner. Yeah. And, and my impression is that most wine brands have got a lot of brand and, and marketing activities that they don't expect you to sell the wine. So you'll be quite you'll be quite surprised about that, okay. Holger. In that, in that, um, a, a lot of them uh, understand them. They, they don't maybe necessarily understand maybe the Gauteng market as well as they should do. And um, I'm very I'm very much a top down. I have a top down sort of approach. So I look at consumers first and then I move back. It's very nice that you produce the best Malbec in the world, but if Malbec isn't selling, what is the point in producing it? Um, I very much look at what consumers want and then I move backwards and then I, then I go back to, then I go back to wine farm and I say, look, is this a possibility? Can this be produced? I think at the sort of price point it will work. Whereas they very much don't take that sort of approach. They take a very different sort of approach and say, I want to make the best of this and I'm going to push it onto the market. I very much don't uh, agree all the time with that sort of approach. Yeah. So they're a little bit removed from, from the market. They are a little bit, you know, but I mean, they also need that passion and they need that. So I Mm. understand where they're coming from 100%, you know, and it is, you know, uh, for some of them, not not all of them, but for a certain amount of them, it's definitely an ego purchase buying buying a wine farm and they want to produce wines that they like. That always, that doesn't always commercially work. Okay. Yeah. Your business is located on the wrong side of Joburg. Is that that's correct? Uh, <laughs> is that part of your your philosophy, or is that is that just where you've always been? So we actually used to be in North Riding, oh. um, and uh, we actually had uh, first we were in Stradon Park uh, before I was partner. Then um, we moved. Uh, then they moved to North Riding, um, and I mean, us, it, it all came down to economics. To be honest, uh, I think what I, I what I I bought these two buildings for, and what I was paying rent here when we first moved here, is less than what I was paying seven years, uh, eight years ago, in North Riding. 
Okay. I said, you know, for me, it's I don't need to have a fancy building, uh, you know, because yeah, if I have 500 clients walking through my doors, well, then that might be a different scenario. But, you know, I go to client. The client doesn't come to me. So no need for a very fancy sort of warehouse. And um, I always say, I mean, De Beers is our neighbor. So I try and, uh, I try and zhuzh up our, our address a bit. But, you know, we are in Boysons. So, you know. <laughs> And from there, you ship, you've got trucks running the northern part of, of South Africa from the Free State. You say even some parts of the Northern Cape. That's that's an, a pretty big call, isn't it? Yes, it is. So um, I, I, I've taken a very, very different sort of approach. I like to uh, I like to sleep at night, so I enjoy. I join my family. I like to. I like to have those sort of. Uh, uh, I don't like to worry as, so much. So I, I, I distribute everything out of out of out of this one warehouse. I don't have sub warehouses in uh, different areas. You know, I, I, I like to have that sort of control. So it's. Uh, it most probably will need to change if I want to become a national distributor at one point. Um, but for the moment, um, even though it's more expensive um, and it's most probably not as commercially viable as uh, as it should be, we distribute everything from uh, – we go all the way up to Louis Trichard, uh, Bloemfontein, uh, Douglas, uh, Lichtenberg, all the way to Hoodsprite on the other side uh, – yeah, down to Kamati Port. You know, we do that whole area and we distribute it all out of uh, all of all out of our warehouse. Yeah, poisons. And, and you've done that for the last fifteen years. Yeah, I mean, we were very much uh, localized um, when we first started, but you know, um, as I wanted to uh, increase the footprint, um, I sent my reps out. Um, you know, some some of my reps have been with me for the last 17 years, you know, so um, they were all very localized. And, you know, I told them, well, you know, if you, you know, if the basket isn't getting any bigger in your, in your areas, the only thing to do is, I suppose, head west or head east, yeah. you know, and, uh, and they did, you know, and, um, yeah, that's how we increased the footprint. Do the trucks sleep out then? They do, yeah. So we generally, so if, if my rep will go, say, on a two-day trip out to, you know, do Limpopo, that sort of side, they'll generally follow that same track. They'll also go for two days over. Okay. Yeah. Jason, uh, what have, what has been for you? What has been the biggest change in the liquor industry in the last twenty years? So, I, yeah, it, it's definitely. I mean, uh, redistributors have definitely come to the fore. They were never there before. Explain F- maybe what, funny, a, what you mean by a redistributor. So, redistributors, um, I very much look at them as people that they're essentially a one-stop shop. Um, for the trade, they for the trade. They're not there to market brands. They are there to provide a service, pretty much like Checkers provides a service for you as a grocer. You can go you go in there and you can buy all your groceries. Pretty much the same as a redistributor, whatever from a liquor and uh, cold drinks uh, supply perspective, they'll be able to help you out. And, and, and I think the major changes come in is that as economics have become tighter um, and 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 the market has become more competitive, especially from a restaurant perspective, um, there's de- 
the the trade is definitely over traded from a restaurant perspective. And with that being said, cash flows have become under huge strain, um, and it's much easier to buy today for today than it is to buy essentially six bottles of each wine. It's much easier that you say, okay, well, I only, only need to buy two bottles of wine. I don't need to buy a case of Jagermeister. I only, you know, I'll only buy one bottle of Jagermeister. So from that perspective, they've definitely taken a huge chunk of the market away from distributors. Yeah, and that means they buy from you and then resell it onto the restaurants. Yes. It's 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 also taken a bit of the power away. I can tell you from 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 distributors. Yeah. Um, because we used to, even though our reps will still service clients and still go see those restaurants, the power ne doesn't necessarily sit with us anymore. The power of persuasion from a from a from a restaurant perspective, because the primary relationship falls on the redistributor. Mm. The, the ability to influence change on a wine list or a promotion, et cetera, has, be, has been diminished quite substantially. Yeah, and that's not, not always a good thing for, no, for the it's, brands. No, definite, it's definitely not, no. And, and for you. So I, I think the redistributors also, I mean, they just sell what what uh, there's demand for. So it's, it's it kind of makes the strong strong brands stronger and the weak brands weaker it, it definitely does and a, a very sad fact is is that you know for s smaller brands that don't have financial backing or don't have big marketing budgets um it's becoming inherently a lot harder for them to get um you know into market and the Pure reason is is because the big players have the ability um, to spend money on wine lists, to spend money um, in in these restaurants, and and you can't blame the restaurants at the same time. A lot of them are financially strapped, and they they don't have you know they don't have a lot of money. So when someone offers them something, you know, to um, you know to change their wine list, or they they generally go with it. Um, but it, but it's quite a sad state of affairs because. At the end of the day, we most wine lists are becoming like a vanilla sort of flavored wine list. Um, there's not that much variety that they used to be. I remember when I was first in the trade, I mean, a wine list was a very proud thing for someone to have. I'm not saying that there's still not a lot of – there's still not those restaurateurs out there that are – that are proud of their wineness and, and and do different things on their wineness because they definitely are, but they definitely are not as many as they used to be. Yeah. The other big change that for me has been obviously that the that SAB has got competition, and I mean I know it doesn't affect you directly, but isn't it unbelievable how how well Heineken has done? It is. When my father worked for South African breweries, he worked for Maya Khan, and. Um, you know, Mike Khan's famous saying was that uh, you know e even even mineral water is is our competition, mm. and I and I and I like that. You know, I very much take that to heart. So, for me, anything from a from a from a drinks perspective is competition, yeah. because if they're not drinking your brand, they're drinking someone else's brand, and if they're not drinking wine, they're drinking beer. If they're not drinking gin, you know, so 
Yeah, I mean, Heineken definitely has uh, has stepped up the game. But I have to give kudos to uh, South African breweries for doing that because at the end of the day, uh, the main market definitely was the driving factor behind that brand. And, you know, South African breweries had the rights to those in the 90s, you know. Um, that and Amstel were, you know, were, were all um, South African breweries brands. Um, yeah. It's obviously changed now. But, um, yeah, you can see that they're definitely uh, feeling the competition. Um, the amount of different skews that South African breweries is bringing out is, for me, it's a bit crazy. It's just, uh, you know, uh, and I mean, now now they're doing distribution of Red Bull. Um, they're going to do distribution of, it looks like they're going to do distribution of uh, other products, other wine brands, et cetera. They, 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 they're trying to become, again, like me, they're trying, obviously, on a much bigger scale, but they're trying to become a drinks business. Okay. They're not just trying to be uh, a beer business, so I hear. So, yeah, it, it's interesting times. I think they realize that, obviously, beer is, and it will be for a long time, will be will be strong. But if you look at the trends worldwide, I mean, look at how hard seltzer is, uh, is taking over in the States. Um, so, Obviously, with their global footprint, I'm sure they see, you know, they see these trends and they say, well, they can't just sit on their laurels and just, you know, just, just produce beer the whole time. They have yeah. to look into other avenues. So, yeah. Yeah. so you can definitely say that a, a portion of the rise of, of redistributors has definitely come from from actually brand house days. Brand when house, yeah. Heineken was with, you know, when, uh, Vintuk, when, when they were linked together, you know. Tell us a little bit about Pandora. Pandora's box. Oh, that's so. Uh, so, back in the day, I used to uh, I used to do a lot of export overruns. So, what would happen was, let's say, whatever farm it was would get a, a container order from China, and they obviously needed to make a specific brand for them. There would be a few hundred cases left over. And I would source all these products from from Cape Town, and they were quite inexpensive. And the only problem was with that, generally it was very decent wine, but the problem was there was no continuity on it. So as soon as I had done something with it, people would ask for it for more and more and more, but there would be none of it. So one day I was actually sitting with a friend of mine and we we're having a drink. We we're actually having a few drinks, just one. And, um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I said to him, I said, you know, I really want to make a brand that's inexpensive that's good value for money i said I, I i like the oddbins sort of idea i like that idea but i said oddbins also has inherently the same problem as what i was having with um with these export overruns in that lot one two five of oddbins would only come out once and then you'd never see it again yeah. so people would get excited about it but then would never see it so i said you know i really want to make this brand that. I can source different wine from different regions in, in the Cape. But you know what? No one will ever know where it comes from. But as long as I keep taste profile the same year in, year out, I said, because people fall in love with taste profile. If they like what they taste, you'd like to drink that all the time. It's like you drink Shivers Regal, tastes the same every year. And that's why people drink Shivers Regal. They become Shivers Regal drinkers, you know? So uh, by about 12 o'clock, we had had a lot to drink. And I was like, and I turned around and I said, you know, I said, 
why don't I call it Pandora's box? Because you never know what you get in Pandora's box. <laughs> so he's like, this is a great idea. So anyway, I was, uh, I was a little bit under the weather. So I wrote Pandora's box on a little piece of paper and I put it in my top pocket, carried on drinking a little bit more. And in the morning, I'd actually forgotten about it. I put my shirt in the washing and then I realized that I had this, I don't know what it was. I thought it was money actually in my top pocket. And it was this little piece of paper that said Pandora's box on it. And then it obviously reminded me of, uh, of the brand. So, yeah, I mean, that brand was just brought out as maybe a little ego thing for, for me to say I've got my own brand. And um, I started it, my winemaker, James McKenzie, who's from Narvaculiechen and Snow Mountain Wines, a very good friend of mine, and I asked him if he could help me with this project. And at the time he did, and he actually didn't even ask for payment. He didn't ask me. He just said, look, this is just for you. And I was like, listen, I'm going to give you something. And I gave him a percentage, a rand value per bottle. I said, come, let's go with a rand value per bottle. And he's like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. And, um, and I think he was happy that he did that because, uh, yeah, it's obviously, it's morphed into this massive brand and, uh, and I'm glad that he, that he partakes in the profits at the same time because he's put this exceptional work. Uh, everyone sees the work that I do. They see uh, that I did this branding and I, I push it out in market and stuff, but he's the one he's the, he's the mad scientist that can go around and you know, mad winemaking can go around and source these different wines and blend them together and produce great wines year in and year out that we can, sell at really really good price points so um the brand ethos is definitely i I've, I've come up with it and i gave him the brief of what i wanted but he's very very much involved and he very much understands what uh, what what the brand needs and uh yeah he's actually he pretty much produces all of my brands on, from a wine perspective since then and just yeah. mention the other brand names so uh, after after that, we brought out a brand called Bellavina. So that is more a uh, again. I wanted to produce something. Obviously, there's there's the Saints range out in there. There's uh, um, Tall Horse, and I was like, I want to bring something from a wine by the glass perspective. That's really good. That's not box wine. That's something in bottle that I can get price point close to box if you work it out per glass. I said except the restaurateur is going to be able to pour it from a bottle instead of from a box. Okay. And, um, yeah, so we brought that out. Um, then I, um, then I bought a brand from uh, Boer and Brit called Bob's Your Uncle that used to be in a, in a beer bottle. Um, we did a rebranding on that. Um, and that we use a lot of English idioms because obviously Bob's Your Uncle is we make a wine the perfect storm another one's called once in a blue moon merlot so uh, we play on english idioms there um and uh then our latest venture that we've brought out is uh, is box wine um again i wanted to premiumize the brand uh the the category uh, i and i i mean no ill of anyone else who's brought out box wine but i i i very much think that the that there's not a lot of creativity brought out in um, in box wine. To, to a large degree, it's either 
three bottles of wine sitting on a box or it's a picture of a vineyard with a glass. I'm like, you, you know, you've got this blank canvas that you can do something on to make it look beautiful uh, much bigger than on a bottle. So why is everyone doing it on bottle and no one's doing it on box? So we brought out this brand called Smith and Co. I wanted to do something uh, elegant and, uh, and very beautiful because um, I, I, I very much wanted female consumers uh, to buy into the brand. So we did, a, we did a lot of, uh, it took me about a year and a half to develop that brand. Um, and then I, then I held on to it for about a year. And during lockdown was actually when the time when I, when I pushed the button and finalized it, because I realized that, you know, the, on the first lockdown, I said, you know, consumers are going to be strapped. And the reality is people are going to start drinking a lot more box wine. Yeah. And, and it was actually proved to me, um, you know, Salva's figures showed that for the first time in history, box wine outsold bottle wine in 2020. It's the first time that it's ever happened. And, um, yeah, you can see obviously a lot of players are now moving towards, I mean, Woolworths has done their two liter premium, uh, premium box. There's uh, Distel is bringing out some, uh, some, some, some premium boxes. So is the uh, Vinnie Mark. So it's definitely moving towards that trend. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm glad that we were one of the forerunners, and, and it's definitely helped us out. We've uh, the brand has pretty much exploded. It's doing exceptionally well. So we started off with three liters, we've now just brought out five liters, and there's a good possibility we're going to do one liter tetra packs quite soon as well. Okay, and it's all made at the same facility. So we use different facilities. Okay. Um, I, I I'm very much not uh, about. The problem with any wine farm or any winery is wine only gets produced um, once a year. So all of these capital costs are held just for production once a year. Same with a wine farm. You only you do all of these things. You do all of these things to do. Um, yeah, so that you only can produce grapes once a year. So I, I very much rent space, you know, and we only rent space over harvest. And then we only rent space, you know, we only, we contract bottle because it's infinitely easier than having, you know, owning the asset ourselves. So, of course. Um, so we have different facilities. So where our bottles are done is very much different to where our box is done. Okay. Jason, that was a real interesting conversation. And I know you don't really deal directly with the consumers, but where can people find you and get hold of you? So um, I'm more than happy to give uh, give my email address out. Anyone can contact me. I'm a very uh, I like to uh, I like to interact with consumers, and that's from consumers being whether it's a retailer or it's an end consumer. So um, my email address is Jason at nicholsonsmith.co.za. And uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to answer any questions if anyone's interested in any of the brands or whatever information they need. Uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to impart whatever whatever knowledge I have of the industry. So. Okay. And and you also have a website at nicholsonsmith.co.za. Yes. Yeah, .co.za, yeah. Okay. Jason, it's been wonderful and I'm so glad we 
connected and had this conversation. I'm sure it'll be very valuable for the trade. Um, and yeah, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. I really do appreciate it. Okay. Thanks. Uh, keep well. 